more of the, the nitty-gritty of, of the symbolism and the holy days today, because I think it is encouraging and inspiring for us to look at these things and to understand them. Uh, I hope that with the emotion we might be feeling now, we can uh, still think in these terms and concentrate on what we're addressing. But we did, not long ago, go through the stories of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I think I mentioned last week that Abraham is a type of our Father in Heaven, that Isaac is a type of Christ Himself, and that that was carried out in terms of the Father asking Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, and Abraham complying, and Isaac being willing to go along with that as well. So Abraham and Isaac did have the right attitudes and therefore made a wonderful type of our Father and our soon-coming Savior. And Jacob came along in the next generation and was renamed Israel because Jacob is a type of the bride. It is Jacob that God is working through, spiritual Israel today, or spiritual Jacob, not just physical, to prepare, to call out and prepare a bride for his Christ. I mean, for his son. Well, for his Christ as well, as the Messiah says in the music. But uh, that analogy is very strongly there. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, father, son, and bride, or wife. And we saw that that was arranged, that Abraham sent a very trusted servant to arrange a marriage for his son. So they did have arranged marriages, and even in this perfect type of the way weddings and marriages, uh, well, let's well, we go back further, even perhaps romance and dating leading to marriage uh, or weddings and marriage is laid out there. And much of God's mind is laid out there. And sometimes we may have wondered why God went through all the detail of that and took quite a few chapters, really, to go through the whole story, if that's all it amounted to. But there was a message there, a very powerful message, for us to understand and grasp today about God's plan. And we have seen, over the years... I've heard many times in the church, Abraham and Isaac brought up as a type of the father and the son. I don't know that I ever heard it preached, maybe it was and I forgot, that Jacob was the bride in that story. I don't think it was taken that far in the analogy, but I think as we look at this, it becomes quite clear that God is working through Israel, particularly spiritual Israel, to find the bride. So there were arranged marriages, and the marriage that is before us today uh, is an arranged marriage. The father of the groom was heavily involved. Abraham is the one. Isaac didn't say to a servant, why don't you go find me the right girl? Abraham approached his faithful messenger and told him, go find a bride for my son. And I think that it is interesting to consider that in a way, Christ was the most eligible bachelor around, wouldn't you think? And the whole so-called Christian world knows of him. And it, it might be, in a way, this is way down the line, but we have sometimes in some of the magazines that are produced today. Uh, a list of the most eligible bachelors they'll have, you know, whether it's Prince William or somebody in the royalty or whether it's some Hollywood icon or, or some rock star or whoever that's not married. These are the most eligible. And then one of those perhaps will be named the very number one most eligible bachelor. And of course, then all the girls, single girls, the teenagers and young women in the nation that read those magazines uh, think, boy, there's, there's somebody special, most eligible bachelor in the world, but I'll never meet him. Uh, I don't know how I could get in contact and, you know, then they have the, the circle that they date. 
And it's hard to, to get to that circle, isn't it? There have been a lot of young ladies who went out to Hollywood and thought, well, I'll, I'll be an actress, I'll be a movie star, and then I'll marry the most eligible bachelor, whatever your heartthrob is out there. And they get out to Hollywood and Vine, and they have no way of even getting in contact with these people. And there's gates and there's guards, and you can't get there. Even though you might be in Hollywood itself, walking the streets of Beverly Hills, chances of running into those people and having them invite you over for dinner would be pretty rare. Because they move in their own circle. Well, Christ is indeed the most eligible bachelor in the universe, and He plans to marry. There's a whole world of people who have heard of Him. Some of them reject Him entirely out of hand, but they've heard of Him. The Hindus, the Buddhists, they've heard of Him. The Arabs, the Muslims, they've heard of Him. But they figure He's out of their league, or they have their own most eligible bachelor, whatever they might call Him, who's coming back for them in their particular religion. But the Christian world has heard of Christ, but most of the Christian world might be likened to these teeny boppers who've heard of the most eligible bachelor, but they know they don't have a shot. But now, somebody has to be a possibility for him, do they not? And the Scriptures tell us that the 144,000 will be the bride of Christ. I'm not going into all that today. We've been there before. But who do they consist of? Where do they come from? Now here's where the Father is involved. He says in John 6:44, and I want to run back and read that one right quick, because it is a very pivotal scripture in this understanding. John 6, verse 44. Oh. Well, verse 43, Christ therefore answered and said to them, Murmur not among yourselves. No man can come to me except the Father which has sent me draw him, and I will raise him up at the last day. So he's saying, no man can come to Christ except the Spirit of the Father draw him there. And those that are drawn there will be in the resurrection at the last day. The part of the bride is dead and buried. Christ spoke of, or I mean, Paul spoke of the early New Testament church in his letters as being a part of the bride. And he had a hand in, in uh, producing that bride, as we'll see here in a moment. So, you could have the whole Christian world out here that would like an introduction would like a date with Christ, but they're not offered that opportunity. At least not, no, they're not offered that opportunity at all. And in fact, never will. Because those who come in the millennium will not be the bride of Christ or the great white throne judgment. They will be children of the marriage later on. So, nobody can just say, well, I want on the inner circle to become a part of those eligible to be the bride of Christ. No man can come except the Spirit of the Father draw him. So Christ himself isn't even the one that calls people into the dating group, if you will. It is the Father himself. And that is borne out in the analogy, or in the actual story that is a type of what we are seeing spiritually of Abraham. It wasn't Isaac, but Abraham who sent his trusted servant out. Now, in this particular case, Christ himself did come to the earth, but while he was here, this analogy has to fit, while he was here, he did not begin calling people to be a part of his bride. He came here for some very set and specific purposes. But he did not begin the church while he was here, did he? He baptized no one. The church didn't start until after he went back to his Father in heaven. 
Then the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost, and the church began. So he had his part to play in this scenario as it plays out in the holy days. So he is not exactly in the same situation as the servant who went out uh, from Abraham to find a son for Isaac. I mean, a, a, a bride for Isaac. Uh, there are some elements of that in there, yes. But that servant has... Uh, there's a different type that fits that servant, I think, more so than it fits Christ. It fits him in some ways. But the servant was not necessarily at that time even really a part of the family, was he? Isaac was the son. The servant was not a blood relative of Abraham. At least as far as I know he wasn't. He was just a servant. Could have been anybody. And I think that's important to understand. So, our Father chooses us to be a candidate for the bride. We'll see that in the story in John in a little bit when we get there, but... In the meantime, just put this thought in mind that uh, many are called and few are chosen. So when that servant went out from Abraham, he didn't know where the girl was. He didn't know which one it would be. Now he said, go choose from those of my family. Don't just choose from the, the whole world. Go to my family. Now, we have to be called by the Father to become a part of those called to be at the wedding feast, to be invited. And then out of those many that God would call in the early New Testament church, and now, and in between, only so many are chosen until the right number is reached of 144,000 who will be the bride. So it is a process that is ongoing. There have been people called in many generations, and only so many have been chosen of those. And you can read in the New Testament how some were called to the church, who dealt with the ministry, and then went their way. And Christ had the parable about the sower who sowed the seed, and some would fall in stony, some in thorns, some in good ground, and so on. Some would produce fruit, and some would not. Some would be wheat and some would be tares. And it is a process over time in which this is worked out. It isn't like God just looks down and says, I want that one, that one, that one, that one, that one to be my son's bride. He doesn't do it that way. He calls many, and from them, he sees what they do because there is qualification involved. So when that servant went out from Abraham... He approached the area where Abraham's relatives were, and he prayed a prayer. He said, God in heaven, help me, lead me to the right girl. I want to do the job that I was called to do. I want it to be the right bride for Isaac. Help me figure it out and cause the one that comes and offers uh, to do certain things, draw water, to be the one. And before he'd even finished his prayer... Here comes the one who will be the bride. And everything worked out. So he went to the family, talked with them, and made the deal. And from there the story goes on. So, our Father chooses, calls many. And from those within the family, they become part of the family. They become baptized, they become part of the church. And then God begins to sort it out to see which ones will indeed produce fruit, which ones will dry up and blow away, which, one will get, which ones will get caught in the thorns and not be able to accomplish the purpose. So out of Abraham's family, the man prayed and God sent the one. Now I'm sure Christ has talked with his father and said, I want to get the right one, or ones, since the bride is multiple in this case. Now let's go to 2 Corinthians 2, or 11, 2 Corinthians 11 for a moment. 
see what Paul had to say about this. 2 Corinthians 11. Uh, he has been talking here about just being a human being and nothing special. And Paul does say that in several places in his epistles. But uh, he couldn't live up to the things that he ought to be. Things he wanted to do, he didn't do. And the things he didn't want to do, he wound up doing. So he had his difficulties. He said, oh, wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of sin? And then he said, Christ can. So he realized he was a very human being. And he starts here in chapter 11 of Second Corinthians. Would to God you could bear with me a little in my folly, and indeed bear with me. Understand, I'm human too, he said, and, and I have my own difficulties. Uh, for I am jealous over you with godly jealousy. Now, Paul had come to have a mind of Christ, and God tells us in Scripture that he is a jealous God, that he is very jealous over his people. And that is an emotion in the right places that can be a good emotion. It's godly jealousy that Paul said he had. For I have espoused you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. Now here you have the ministry introduced and what part they play in this type of wedding and marriage. Paul said he was in the position of espousing them. So that puts him in the same position that the servant was who came from Abraham. Now Christ himself, or Isaac, stayed home. Uh, but before that, remember, Isaac was taken out and was to be offered, sacrificed. But it was only a type of something that would come later, so God did not require Isaac's life. That same thing would be acted out before the marriage, before the espousal, with Christ, who would come to be sacrificed before the call actually went out for a bride. So there you have the story laid out. God caused the sacrifice to be enacted before, later on, He sent a messenger to find a bride. So Christ came to this earth, and not only as a type, but became the actual sacrifice. And later on, in Acts 2, now while he was here, he began to train some men, but he did not give them the power of his Spirit until after he was gone. So he did not come down and begin the espousal process himself, but he left it in the hands of James, Peter, John, and the rest of the ministry, the apostles that he had called. He gave them the power of His Spirit on Pentecost. Now, from the time that He enacted His sacrifice, there was no movement forward in a church or a body or a growth or establishment of a bride until 50 days later. What were they told to do? Immediately scurry around right after He ascended to heaven before them and begin to assemble a church and a bride for him? No, he didn't. He says, you wait here 50 days. They just sat there, did nothing. They were all gathered in one place, in one accord, in Acts 2, when the day of Pentecost was fully come. And then the Spirit of God came upon them. And thousands were converted that first day. And the second day, and third day, thousands suddenly became candidates to become the bride of Christ. The Father was in heaven, Christ was in heaven, and the messengers, the messengers had been prepared. And they were given power then. And that gives you the correct analogy. And Paul uses it here in 2 Corinthians 11 that he was the one who did the espousing to one husband. I don't think that's mistranslated or unclear, is it? 
that the ministry was used to help select the bride. Now, isn't that essentially the way it worked in the church here in this end time, when God was calling? It says, no man can come except the Spirit of the Father draw him. And people found the broadcast or the literature in some way. Uh, I've heard of stories in Africa about the plain truth cover blew by in the wind, and somebody picked it up and began to reading it, and something came on in their head, and they contacted the ministry. And there are all kinds of stories about how we came across it. By word of mouth, by a chance turning on the radio at 3 a.m. as we traveled across the country. Many, many different ways people came across the truth. And then they wrote to headquarters or wherever, usually to Pasadena, uh, to find out more. And they got literature and so on. Well, isn't that a bit of a dating process? Whereby you begin to, you've heard of Christ, but you didn't know Him. Maybe you went to a Methodist or Baptist church, and I'll guarantee you didn't meet Him there. He wasn't there. He wasn't the Lutheran church or the Catholic church. You'd heard of Him, but you hadn't met Him. Some of those people talk about how Christ is coming for His bride sometimes, but they don't understand, and they're not candidates to marry Him. So it's only when the Father opened your mind and began to show you, and you became acquainted with the Father and the Son. Through education, you began to understand, God opened your mind to understand the Scriptures, which if you had read them before that, you didn't understand, didn't grasp. So your mind was open. And God then used the servants, the ministers that He had called, when you reached a certain point of education, and decided, well, I'd like to get more involved. So maybe you called or wrote Pasadena and asked for more contact or have a minister come see us or however you phrased it. So then the ministry called you or came and knocked on your door and introduced themselves and you talked with them and maybe you'd read this, this, and this and usually they'd say, well, you need to read this, 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 and too and have you heard of such and such? And they'd kind of educate us on who it is that we're to marry. Now, isn't that kind of, a, in a way, a dating process? Where you come to know who it is that you intend to marry. you got to know him, or should know him, somewhat at least, before you're willing to say, okay, I'll marry you. I think that perhaps even in the story of Abraham and Isaac, they certainly knew of one another, and probably when some visitor would go back and forth from one part of the family to the other, they'd say, well, how so-and-so and so-and-so, and would get caught up on the family. We might do it by telephone or text today, but then they had different means. If somebody from the family came to another part of the family, I'm sure everybody wanted to know how Aunt Harriet was, and Uncle Jim, so they talked about those things. How many kids they got? And what are their names? And is any of them good looking? I got a kid here and I want to marry one of them. But, you know, they, they didn't see each other all the time because they were separated in different places in many cases. And isn't that true of the Bride of Christ? Scattered all over the world. But God saw to it that there, was, that there were people trained to come and help the espousal, the introduction, to offer the opportunity to people. So that's the part that the ministry played. Now it turns out there were good ones and there were bad ones. And some of them didn't do the job right, but they should have been trusted servants to do it right. I think Herbert Armstrong was a trusted servant who did faithfully fulfill the job that God gave him. He was the main servant and others then worked in satellite with him to help build the church. But it had to be God who called them. I've sat with people over the years in airplanes and public places and trains, wherever, and we'd get on a topic of religion and maybe, I mean, you know, I'm talking the last 20, 30, 40 years over time, start talking religion, and uh, none of them said, well, 
Oh, you're a minister, huh? Would you explain to me what I need to do to be a part of the bride of Christ? They never ask you that. It doesn't come from them. You could, I could have sat there on that plane with a captive audience for three, four, five hours maybe and explained everything I knew, and it wouldn't mean a thing. They just get a little worse and worse. They look at you out of the corner of their eye. How do I get out of this? You tried to convert people, didn't you? Your friends, your relatives? Don't lie to me. I know you did. Didn't work either, did it? <laughs> you thought, oh, so-and-so. Oh, they'd just love to hear this. I'm going to tell them. Slam. Didn't work. Had to be God opening the mind. And then the ministry came, once that mind was opened by God, and God's faithful and trusted servant, who had written the magazines and the articles and made the broadcasts, and the rest of the ministry basically just pointed people to that, to help them understand. So Paul said he was very involved in the espousal process. Now he'll wind up being part of the bride, but in the meantime, he was used as a faithful servant to go to those whom God was calling, just as James and Peter and them did in Acts 2, and help prepare them to be the bride of Christ. So, the analogy is perfect here so far. Paul says, I espoused you that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. Now, this Corinthian church was a very... Uh, a, a group, Corinth itself, was a very low morals area on earth. And these people had come out of very idolatrous and adulterous backgrounds. But Paul worked with them and led them to repentance. In some cases, baptized them himself. Sometimes someone else did. And brought them, made the deal with them, helped them make the deal with God. And with Christ. That was his function. Just as the servant went and helped them make the deal with the other family for a bride for Isaac. Now Christ comes into this analogy uh, as well, very strongly of course, because it isn't of the ministry they are just tools used by the Father and the Son to help provide something for the Father and the Son, specifically the Son, and that is a wife. Now, according to ancient custom, were it the groom or were it a messenger that was sent to find a bride, they would come and they'd make the deal, and then the messenger or the groom would go back to his father's house and there would be a period of time before the wedding took place. An espousal period. And the groom would go to his father's house and he would build a room or a chamber onto his father's house so that he could have a separate house for his bride and for him to reside in. He'd come out of his father's house, build a place, for her, and then he would go and receive her, bring her home. You begin to see how this story works. Now, he didn't know when the wedding would be. Remember what Christ said? I know neither the day nor the hour, but my Father only. So, the bride, the bride and the groom did not set the wedding date as is done customarily today in our perverted society, but the father of the groom set the date. That's the way it was done then. He would watch and see what happened. Did the son make the proper preparations? Did he get a house in order for his bride? And then when he saw that things were in order, he said, son, you can go get your bride uh, bring her back and we'll have this wedding feast on such and such a day. So they would send out the invitations. He would go bring his bride back. And when the day came, they'd have the wedding feast and the marriage. Now when that servant went out, 
and found a bride for the son, did she have any choice in the matter? Recall the story of Abraham, Isaac, and the, the servant. They came and they made a deal, basically, agreed upon it, but then she was asked, do you want to do this? Are you willing to do this? Will you marry that man? So she had some choice in the matter. She could have said, nope, I've heard of him. I know who he is. I don't want to marry him. In fact, one of my cousins told me he's the ugliest thing there is around. No way. Don't want to do it. So she had some choice in the matter. But not full choice in the matter. You know, we don't always have full choice either, do we? You don't know. You didn't know ahead of time when God would call you. And once He did begin to call you, you had no idea who else He would call. You didn't know whether He'd call your wife, your husband, your aunts, your uncles, your friends, your neighbors. And sometimes the ones that we most thought He might call, He didn't. And people that you'd think, that one would never respond to God, were the ones that He called and they did respond. Same thing when He tore the church apart. People you thought would stay didn't. People you didn't think were part of it in the first place stayed and are part of it to this day. So you had no choice over being called, did you? The Father looks down and calls whom He will and gives them opportunity. So that call comes out of the blue. And then... A process begins. And then finally you're asked, do you want to be baptized really or not? I mean, this process has been ongoing. Now, do you really want to formally go through with this, put your hand to the plow, or do you want to back off? In some cases, people have backed off. Or they'd start studying and they'd find something they didn't like, they'd exit some went ahead forward and decided, yes, I want to go ahead with this. But it wasn't entirely their choice because the father of the groom is the one who did the calling in the first place. You would have had no choice whatever had that call not come, would you? You'd still be out there in the world doing what the world's doing if God had not intervened, interfered, if you will, in your life. Now, when the servant, or in some cases, the groom came looking, there was a custom that he would bring three things. He would bring the bride price, the dowry, to offer the father of the, bri of the, uh, of the bride, yes, the, the bride-to-be, or the one that he would select whether that was cows, sheep, oxen, camels, whatever, he would bring those as a gift to the Father to, if you will, buy the bride. Father said, I raised her. I've got to get something out of her. So they would bring a dowry, which would help the Father to decide whether or not he would let the bride go to this family or this son or not, and to help make the deal. You know, sometimes a young man will come to a father and say, I'd like to ask the hand of your daughter in marriage. The fathers get pretty attached to their daughters, and they don't want to see just anyone marry their daughters, do they? So they want to be a little selective. So the custom was, take some gifts to the old boy. Uh, that might please him, and he might decide, hey... Yeah, I think so. What, what are you doing when you bring those gifts? You're showing that you at least have a dollar. You have a way of, I mean, if you brought these gifts, you must have some way of supporting her. You wouldn't have the, the cows and the sheep and the oxen and the camels. So you're proving that you can take care of her, that you can take care of her family that she might raise. So there, there are meanings behind these things. Brought the bride price, 
They brought a flask of wine, and they brought a document or an agreement to a marriage, an official legal document that you could sign to say, yes, I'm agreeing with this, so that things could proceed. Now, we're going to see some questions answered here, and I think some clarification on why things were done a certain way. Now, when Christ came to this earth, he brought the bride price. Now, he was worth more than all the blood of all the bulls and goats that had ever been sacrificed. And I think that the analogy is certainly there that God instituted animal sacrifices in the Old Testament because people did not live up to the conditions of marriage. He told us very clearly in Jeremiah that he did not speak to them of animal sacrifices when he brought them out of Egypt. It was because of their disobedience that he exacted that price of them later on. So those sacrifices became a type of and pointed toward the one who would come who could truly offer the real bride price, and that was the groom himself. But God was never pleased with the blood of bulls and goats. He never really accepted that as a bride price or a groom price, if you will. He did away with those when Christ himself came and offered himself as the price. What greater price could there be than him offering himself, his life, for the bride? That's why it becomes so important, as we read in Ephesians 5, that the husband take care of his wife very carefully and gently and lovingly, giving himself for her. And he came and gave himself, both in a perfect life as a perfect representation of what a human groom should be, or bride either for that matter, because it was a multi-forked type. And he offered his blood. Now, there's where the flask of wine came. When they came, the bride price was delivered to the Father, and they more or less had a deal. They drank the flask of wine, passed it around to seal the deal. And people often drink to that, whatever it might be. But they drank to the deal, is what they did. Then they got the documents out and made it official. Now, here you have the meaning of Passover in the plan of God. Christ wanted a bride, and he began to call people out. He began to look at candidates. And when Christ came, he showed how a bride and groom should be, how they should live, how they should think and act, and wrote it all down in this book, for us. Now he said that his that his word, the bread of life, he was the bread. So in him is embodied everything that a bride should be, to be just like him, to walk as he walked, to think as he thought, and to bring every thought into the captivity of Christ. He was perfectly mature. And he wants a bride to be perfectly mature. Do you see then why there is so much pressure on us to produce good fruit and proper works? Now, we can never earn a spot as a bride or salvation, in another analogy, because we already have sinned. We have already committed spiritual fornication with this world and therefore cannot be presented as sinless unless and until in some fashion the sin is removed and we become pure and clean, spiritually speaking. So, he shed his blood, which represents the wine of good doctrine, of good teaching, 
And it also represents forgiveness of sin. Now, how did Paul espouse those people? Through baptism and the forgiveness of sin, as their sins were washed away, so he could present that individual as a chaste spiritual virgin to God, as a candidate to be the bride of Christ. So the spiritual analogy of wedding, of courtship, wedding and marriage, begins with Passover. He became the bride price. And his blood became the wine to seal the deal. And his word, his body, his flesh, is the bread of life that we study to learn how to be like him. So that then we are a qualified bride, not just some slutty picked up off the street. Now, we may have been that at one point physically in our lives and even spiritually in some of the adulterous churches that are out there. But then we are brought forward and cleansed by the washing of the water of the Word and cleansed of past sin. That's, that clears up our thinking when we begin to think according to His words. And then what we have done in the past that has been wrong and sinful is washed away in the water, which represents, again, forgiveness, and the wine, which represents His death in place of us who would have had to die for our sins so that we might live as His bride instead of die as an adulterous woman. So there's incredible symbolism in the Passover. Now, what does Christ tell us that he is going to do? He espoused us in baptism. That was the beginning of the engagement period. We became uh, tied more closely to him. We began to learn, we began to read about him, we began to do some of those things, but we had not made a formal declaration and an agreement. And the Passover represents... An agreement that is made. And we accept his price, don't we? We accept his blood to forgive our sins, to be the payment that is required before we can even begin to qualify as a bride. And that is not just a one-time forgiveness. It's something that has to be continual. Because even though we may have entered into an agreement, we have not yet married Baptism does not represent marriage. It represents turning from one way of life to a different way of life, and then we have the days of unleavened bread that are there with it. And we have those days that picture putting sin out of our life, or putting in a marriage symbolism, character flaws, wrong habits out of our lives, so that we might become the kind of bride that he would want. Now, as a wedding comes nearer and nearer and a couple get to know each other better and better, uh, the Twitter patient you might have felt right at the very beginning, you know, the, the fluttering heart and the, oh, the, the little feelings inside that we get when we begin to date and get to know someone, sometimes those at some point can be supplanted somewhat by the cold water of reality that that person is not perfect after all. And there's some adjustments that have to be made. So even though Christ might agree with us in principle, there is a period of time there where he expects us to examine ourselves. If we're going to do this, and this, this word is his body and represents him, We've got to become like Him. There's got to be some adjustments made. So we have seven days of examining ourselves and seeing what flaws are there that might prevent us from becoming the bride of the ruler of the world. And we're supposed to begin changing those, not just recognizing them, but changing them. 
And I submit that we are not even at that point fully betrothed. But there is another holy day coming up that has great meaning after the Passover and days of unleavened bread. But let's, before we move there, let's look at a couple of scriptures. 1 Corinthians 6. I think Paul understood this analogy. 1 Corinthians 6. Let's pick it up in verse 14. God has both raised up the eternal and will also raise up us by his own power. So he's speaking here of the resurrection of the dead, which we know is the resurrection of the 144,000, the bride of Christ. And here's what Paul has to say about it here. Know you not that your bodies are the members of Christ? They don't belong to us anymore. They belong to him. All of our members, our head, our feet, toes, our legs, every part of our body becomes a member of his. And here is what is so wrong, and he was writing to whom? The Corinthians, who had very low morals, and to them fornication and adultery and divorce and remarriage and all that kind of stuff was just a way of life. It was very much like America today, where you have very, very loose morals. So he was trying to explain to them what the situation really is and why chastity is so important. Know you not that your bodies are the members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them the members of an harlot? God forbid! Christ is holy and pure and righteous, never sinned. And when we become baptized, as these people were, we have declared that we wish to marry Christ himself. We have accepted the price, his life, for us and our sins, to cleanse us. And then we become a part of his body, the church. And he said in one place, let not fornication be mentioned in the church, not even once. I'm paraphrasing, that's not exactly what he said, but that was the thought. Because we are the body of Christ and we are held to a much higher standard. Can we be members of a wrong sexual relationship? No. What? He asked the question, what? Why would anyone even consider such a thing, I think was the tone here. Know you not, don't you understand, that he which is joined to an harlot is one body? For two, says he, shall be one flesh. Now that began from the very beginning, did it not? Adam and Eve were created separately. And when God put them together and they had a sexual relationship, they became one flesh. And there is a joining there that occurs when two people, two human beings, have a sexual relationship. There is a oneness that occurs that is unlike anything else in human experience. And it is to be reserved for our mate not passed around willy-nilly as people have tended to do. There is great spiritual meaning in the sexual relationship. And that's why Paul said, I speak of Christ in the church when I speak of marriage. And it was that physical joining in sex that God was talking about in Genesis when he made Adam and Eve. And we are violating that meaning when we use sex for any other purpose. And you do become one flesh with anyone you sleep with or have sex with. In a way, it, it, it opens up understanding about that person 
that can be known no other way. And it should be reserved for husband and wife. For two, says he, shall be one flesh. But he that is joined to the eternal is one spirit. So then he says, flee fornication. Run from it. Why do we have laws in our society even? Not just biblical laws, they're there too. But even in our society, we have laws whereby men or women, adults, are constrained not to have relationships with younger boys and girls. We call it pedophilia. Sex with children. We have those laws because when boys and girls begin to reach puberty, they begin to have feelings and desires drives that they don't have the maturity to handle or to understand or know what to do with. And if they make mistakes young in their life, those things will come back to haunt them later. They will cause emotional distress. They will cause uncertainty. They will cause lack of trust between ultimate husbands and wives later on. They'll just create havoc in life. And the more those things are indulged in, the greater the price that people pay later. So, even society recognizes that youngsters who begin having those feelings and desires don't have the maturity to know how to handle them, how to use them, how to control themselves. So, if you mess with them, you go to jail. Because they need to be taught by their parents before they ever even begin to reach maturity or puberty. That those feelings and desires will come. And that they're natural and how they need to be handled and how they should not be handled. So the child has some inkling when they begin to have those feelings and you already have communication opened up so that you can discuss it and help them Get through it without making mistakes. But most parents are so squeamish about those things, they won't even bring them up. And then they have the talk at some point where they tell them, don't you do this and don't you do that, and close the book and that's it. And then the kids have to go learn everything on their own, pretty much. But there needs to be a dialogue between parents and children from the time those children are little bitty so that they begin to learn what is going to come upon them and what they are supposed to do when those things do come. Most kids are not fully prepared by their parents, and then they get talked into things by someone that they shouldn't get talked into. They don't have the control themselves. Hopefully that will come later. But parents have a responsibility to help them as those desires come upon them, and the rest of society has to leave them alone and not take advantage of their desire that does not have the commensurate maturity to go with it so that they can control themselves. In other words, they should not be taken advantage of. Because this is an important issue with God. And it becomes a very important issue in marriage. So we need to understand, and I think Paul was not here just getting on them about their lax morals, which they did have, or had had, but he was trying to explain to them why this is so important. Why it's not just a human choice that it's my body, I can do what I want, but that God created us with a great purpose in mind of becoming a part of his kingdom someday. So that these moral issues then are very important because marriage itself is supposed to picture Christ and the church ultimately, as he explained in Ephesians 5. And that's what God was telling Adam and Eve when he made them and placed them in the garden. You are to leave father and mother. Of course, they had been created and there was no fathers and mothers around at that point. But there would be. 
But he explained to them the meaning. So when you have children, they're supposed to marry, and two will be joined as one. Not three, or sixteen, or forty-three, or five hundred be joined as one, but one man, one woman. And we're supposed to keep it at that. Very few people in society, from Adam and Eve on down, have done so. But that's what God intended. And there's a lot of heartache and misery in society today because people have not understood and then in understanding have not followed what God said. So Paul was raising an alarm here. He said, don't you people understand? Well, no, they didn't. They'd been raised in Corinth of all places and no, they didn't understand. So they had to have understanding before they could begin to change their way of life. So, we began to make changes once we began to understand God's way of life somewhat better. He that is joined to an harlot is one body, or for two, says he, shall be one flesh. So, if you have sex with somebody, you are becoming one flesh on a physical level with them. And you're not supposed to do that but with one. So he says, flee fornication. Every sin that a man does is without the body, or apart from the body. But he that commits fornication sins against his own body. You can lie, you can steal, and it does not have the same effect on a human being as fornication does. It does not do the same emotional damage. It doesn't damage your relationship with a marriage partner later on in the same way. You are taking something from your own body and sinning against your own self. People use the reasoning, well, it's my body, I can do what I want with it. But God says, if you do immoral acts, your own body and mind will pay for it. You will suffer. Because it does have emotional ramifications down the road. What? Know you not that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit which is in you, which you have of God, and you are not your own? Oh, then it's not your body. It's not my body. I can't do with it as I please because it belongs to God. So that argument then suddenly goes away, doesn't it? Well, it's my body. I can do what I want. No, it belongs to God. Now, he's not just talking adultery here, let's say an adult that is married. He's talking about fornication, which is premarital use of your body. The very fact that you are created, that you are given life on this earth, makes you a child of God and you belong to Him. So using the argument, well, I'm not baptized yet, I'm not converted yet, so I can do what I want until I'm converted. doesn't hold any water. By virtue of the fact that you are a human being makes you a child of God. He owns you. And you don't have choice then of what you will do with your body. Now, you have to choose right or wrong, yes. But you belong to him, and he says, I have the power to kill you. I have the power to take your life. Choose life. Live my way. So I think this removes that argument that some of our young people have used. Well, I'm not converted, so it doesn't matter. No, you already belong to God. Understand that. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit which is in you, which you have of God, and you are not your own. If you are not yet a partaker in God's Spirit, you're supposed to be someday. And His Spirit is supposed to reside in a clean vessel. So the cleaner you can keep it, the better it is going to be in your life, both physically and spiritually later on. For you are bought with a price. 
getting back to the main theme here of, of the marriage and so on. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. So he says, your body and your mind belong to God. And he, pri- he paid the bride price when he came, not only for those of us who have been baptized, but for those who ultimately will be. And if you are not, if you're too young and aren't mature as a human being by the time Christ returns, then you'll be a candidate for life in the world tomorrow, time of peace and happiness, and to have the right kind of life that isn't full of the frustrations that life in our society today has. Well, I'm out of time, I see. Although I guess I have plenty left, considering we had long announcements and so on. Uh, But here we are discussing the bride price. We're bought with a price. His death. Uh, Maybe I'll just go ahead and stop there. I've got several scriptures along these lines, but uh, if I get into those, it'll take another half hour. So let's stop there, beginning with the understanding that uh, the Passover is the beginning of the marriage story. And we're going to see that analogy all the way through with each one of the holy days, that it has a very deep and abiding meaning uh, in terms of the meaning of those holy days. So we'll pick it up there next. Well, let's see, I don't speak next week. Next time I speak, God willing.